What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Some of the stories we look at on This Week in FCPA include the $28 million whistleblower award from the SEC in a FCPA case. We ask, will investigations in China become even more difficult? We take a look at some ephemeral messaging guidelines Vera Sharapanova asks, what is moral equilibrium? We take a look at a great new series on the VW monitorship and its success. We consider using neuroscience in leadership. We take a look at corruption in soccer. We look at the Under Armour settlement of SEC charges. We ask, how do you mind the data gap? And we conclude with a judge who admonishes the law firm of Paul Weiss and his former partner, Alex O. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors himself, once again recording from an undisclosed location for this weekend, FCPA, episode 253, the week ending May 21, 2020, back to Disneyland edition. As the Rosen family has now returned to Disneyland and all is right with the world, yet Jay's still podcasting from an undisclosed location, we are back to take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective interest this week. So, Jay, what say ye? Irvine, California. Irvine, California. Well, uh, I think we've been hacked. Uh, your undisclosed location is now disclosed, Jay. We are very close to Disneyland, and uh, we were happy to visit the happiest place on Earth. So uh, thanks for helping us keep our secret, and the feds will uh, take that extra protection and peel off of us right now. So, Tom, what's our first story of the week? So, Jay, we lead with a $28 million whistleblower award, and that, of course, is uh, unique in and of itself. Not too many awards in that high stratosphere, but this is an award in an FCPA case. We rarely get uh, uh, SEC whistleblower awards in FCPA cases, so that makes it all the more interesting and significant and important. Also, um, this was the Panasonic Avionics case, uh, although not identified in the whistleblower award. Uh, specifically, it's, it's clear that it was that case. The awardee who received the SEC bounty got approximately 10% of the uh, total award, which uh, tells you why it was so high, because the penalty was so high. Also, this is one of the few cases that I can remember, Jay, certainly in the FCPA arena, but perhaps in the SEC arena, whistleblower arena as well, where the information provided by the uh, whistleblower not only led to a fine and penalty against the company, but also criminal indictments against C-suite members for their participation in the uh, bribery scheme. So 
Uh, big big award this week, um, significant on many fronts. We've linked to Minky Sun's uh, report in the always great uh, Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, and also we put in the uh, STC report. Uh, Jay, why are or why could investigations in China become even more difficult? Well, thanks for asking, Tom. Uh, we've got one of two articles that we're referencing from the FCPA blog, and this is from Helen Huang and Eric Carlson. Uh, there are imminent changes that are taking place in the legal landscape in China, and these will likely further complicate investigations and litigation involving information that is stored in China. China recently released second drafts of the Data Security Law, DSL, and its Personal Information Protection Law, PIPL, for public comment. Among other provisions, the two laws would impose a new requirement that if a judicial or enforcement agency outside of China requests data that's stored in China companies, they must first obtain the approval of the Chinese government before transferring the data or face potential penalties such as fines. The proposed provisions in both the DSL and the PIPL would supplement existing laws in several ways. First, these two laws together cover a broad scope of data. Second, they apply to all requests from judicial and enforcement agencies outside of China without distinguishing among requests. And third, these laws impose penalties for violations, which has no penalties for non-compliance in the ICJAL. Even though uncertainties remain regarding the Chinese government's plan to implement these provisions, the proposed restrictions in the DSL and PIPL further complicate the dilemma a multinational company may face when confronted with a request or judicial order produced data currently stored in China. Against this background, companies will need to continue to evaluate several factors when faced with a request for a judicial or enforcement agency to provide data stored in China. These factors could include the circumstances for the data transfer, the extent to which data stored in China is controlled by an entity receiving the request from the judicial or enforcement agency, whether the data or information contained in the data is available in other locations or through other means, and finally, the level of interest by China or the requesting country in the data. According to China's legislative plan, both the DSL and the PIPL are likely to be enacted in the next two to three months. Although the timing is less certain, implementing regulations should follow thereafter to provide more regulatory guidance on how these two provisions will be interpreted and implemented. Tom? So, Jay, uh, one of the things that I think bedevils many corporate compliance practitioners is the topic of ephemeral messaging. And that's uh, some of the newer apps which the message literally disappears after some period of time. This is something the Department of Justice has called out uh, as early as 2017. They've had a couple of other policies uh, about this. And the bottom line is, if your employees are using WhatsApp or uh, Signal or Wicker or Telegram, um, then you need to have some sort of policies and protections in place uh, to make sure that they are captured if there is a um, enforcement action. And I came across an article uh, called A Lawyer's Guide to Ephemeral Messaging. And although it speaks to our lawyer brethren, and certainly my lawyer brethren, it really uh, had some great uh, insights for the compliance professional around 
ephemeral messaging. And it had three general uh, points or steps to take. One is halt automated deletion. Uh, the author um, pointed out, the author Rebecca Cronin, a first-time uh, uh, contributor to the This Week in FCPA, uh, said that most automatic deletion applications are configurable, uh, which, frankly, I was not aware of. Uh, so a company's IT department can set configurations and therefore change them. Two, create a data deletion policy. Um, so I think probably there's um, a standard corporate policy that you can dispose of records uh, after seven years or whenever uh, sort of the, the location you live in, uh, the regulators say you can uh, destroy and remove documents, but you should have a data deletion policy uh, for these types of messaging as well. And then, Jay, uh, this this third point uh, I found really interesting. It's something that probably is not thought of enough by compliance professional, which is consult e-discovery experts. Uh, not after you've had an incident where you're trying to recreate everything, but uh, turn to an e-discovery vendor uh, to help you uh, with ephemeral, ephemeral messaging and help you think through setting up these policies because an e-discovery vendor will understand the systems you have in place, where the information stored, and how to stop automated deletion uh, going forward. So, um, like I said, I don't think many compliance practitioners would think of contacting an e-discovery expert, but if you're back at the office, you might want to go down the hall and talk to your legal department, or if you're uh, still working from home, I want to pick up the phone and call your general counsel and ask who they use as e-discovery experts. So uh, good stuff from Rebecca Cronin. So Tom, next up, as promised, the second of two from the FCPA blog. This comes from one of my favorite contributors to this weekend FCPA, Vera Sharapanova, and she is welcoming us to the strange inner world of moral equilibrium. Former federal prosecutor Serena Vash told the Harvard Business Review in 2016, when I first began prosecuting corruption, I expected to walk into rooms and find the most vile people in the world. Instead, she was shocked, shocked to find ordinarily good people that she could maybe have a cup of coffee with that morning. And they were still good people, but unfortunately they had made bad choices. The question of how seemingly good people can act unethically is still relevant in 2021. And the truth is, is that explaining unethical behavior is very complex. One factor is a psychological phenomenon known as moral equilibrium. Each of us maintains a moral identity that we keep in equilibrium by engaging in both good and bad behaviors. We balance our moral choices by constantly comparing our self-image of a good person with our actual behavior. And in other words, we keep a running scoreboard in our head, balancing our current moral perception with our own ethical standards. And this is called a moral reference point. When we act in ways that are not in line with it, we feel bad and actively look for an opportunity to regain our equilibrium, and it's called moral compensation. On the flip side, we may give ourselves permission to act out unethically for a little bit just to get back to the balance between the two sides. This is called moral licensing. In one study supporting these assumptions, the researchers asked two groups to write a short story about themselves uh, using morally negative selfish, mean, or morally positive, fair, kind trait words. And at the end of the study, both groups were asked to donate to charity. Consistent with the moral compensation concept, 
the group donate the first group donated more than the second. The first group was compensating for feeling immoral, and the second group was practicing moral licensing focused on their own goodness. The participants felt entitled them to act selfishly. So what does all this have to do with corporate ethics and compliance? Misconduct is not always a deliberate decision or bad intention. Instead, moral choice is a dynamic process. An effective ethics and compliance program should take a look into account and seek to impact the internal dynamics of moral choice making. Some suggested ways to do follow. First, raise the company's moral reference point by clearly articulating your ethical expectations. This would allow employees to benchmark their own behaviors against higher ethical standards. Two, encourage employees to reflect on the ethical consequences of their actions. At certain times, all of us can fall short of our own ethical standards. Considering the dissonance between the moral reference point and actual behavior can lead to more ethical choices in the future. And finally, teach employees to recognize the possibility of moral licensing. Attending an ethics and compliance training itself can excuse doing something unethical afterward, so it's important to equip the trainees to look out for the effect and their own day-to-day behavior. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, next up, we have a series that Compliance Week has put out this week. It's one of their uh, case studies, Ali McDevitt reporting, and just a fabulous series entitled Coming Clean, Volkswagen's Dieselgate Scandal and Corporate Monitorship. It's a five-part written exploration of how Volkswagen got into such trouble and paid uh, so many billion dollars in fines, both in the U.S. and in other countries, as well as how it made its corporate turnaround. So in part one, uh, Ali took a look at Volkswagen's Dieselgate scandal and Larry Thompson coming in as the corporate monitor. Chapter two, uh, Volkswagen's monitorship uh, and its relationship with the chief ethics and compliance officer, Hiltrud Werner. In episode three or chapter three, uh, VW operationalized its Dieselgate monitorship uh, in a series of steps, and Ali details those. Episode four was the tangible measures of cultural progress at Volkswagen. They created a campaign, Jay, called Together for Integrity, or T4I, and built their whole campaign around that. And chapter four of uh, Ali's five-part series really details how they did that. And then um, chapter five was Volkswagen's path to winning back trust. And here, Jay, they had to um, win back the trust of not only their employees, but literally customers across the globe uh, in the United States, uh, Europe, Asia, you name the country. So the path to winning back the trust, I think, is still ongoing, but they've made a very good start. And this case study is really just a a fabulous uh, case study uh, from Allie and Compliance Week. Uh, It follows her study last fall on uh, the Tale of Two Storms, which is the Carnival uh, Cruise Lines case study. So big shout out to Allie. Looking forward to uh, seeing what she um, and Dave LaFort, the uh, editor-in-chief of Compliance Week, come up with next. So next up, Tom, we have a new contributor, the FlexWork blog. And this comes to us from David Rock, who takes a look at the neuroscience of successful hybrid leadership. 
After a year of uncertainty and massive changes in the when, where, and how we work, this is a once-in-a-century opportunity to build a better normal. Employee surveys and data overwhelmingly show that most employees, 72%, are embracing and prefer a hybrid or completely remote work environment. We are also having to distinguish between myths and data-driven realities of hybrid environments and working from home. Myth number one, employees are less productive outside the office. Reality, remote workers often go above and beyond an average 20% higher performance. Myth, we need to monitor and measure what employees are doing. Reality, employees thrive with high autonomy. And the final myth, we need in-person contact to sustain our culture. Reality, culture is about behaviors, not locations. Decades of research show that giving people a sense of control in a difficult situation is one of the best ways of making an overwhelming experience more manageable. Finding the sweet spot that allows for maximum employee autonomy while meeting company goals is the best long-term solution for both employees and the company. There are three ways that you can think about giving people increased autonomy, where they work, when they work, and then as well as how many hours they work. These are three key areas that need to be addressed for leadership teams and individuals to increase their comfort with the new hybrid work reality. Powered in perception, leaders like anyone who experiences a sense of greater power in any situation process the world differently in three ways. First of all, eliminate bias. Four of the fine main types of bias, expedience, experience, distance and safety, are likely to affect decision-making about hybrid work environments. Threats of letting go. As individual employees' autonomy increases, a manager may experience a perceived loss of status, certainty, and their own autonomy. In particular, rising employee autonomy can make managers feel like they're losing control. Unexpected upsides to build on. While we tend to focus on the things that we will miss as we shift into a hybrid environment, there are lots of upsides that make the decision the correct one for businesses. Here they are, more diverse hiring. With flexibility and location, you can hire the best person for the role. More inclusive practices. Autonomy allows more diverse people to be in the workforce and practices that can be incorporated into collaborative work. Less biased decision-making. Extroverts tend to have an innate advantage in in-person meetings, virtual meeting technology, and practices can enable more people's voices to be heard. Greater innovation. While you do lose the water cooler type of interactions, what you gain with a hybrid environment is much greater, especially if you maintain a focus on meetings being virtual so they can be iterative and always involve the right people. More effective learning. Research shows that shifting from a three-hour workshop to three one-hour virtual sessions over three weeks weeks can result in up to a seven times increase in the way people apply the learning. Learning that can be done online when designed right is faster, more scalable, cheaper, and significantly more effective at building and sustaining habits. Increased employee well-being. While this year has been incredibly weird and stressful, the data has shown that people are more well than when they were before. Building on these concepts, and the research that we have shown will allow organizations to create the workplace of the future and empower employees to choose how to best work for themselves. Tom? So, Jay, uh, next up, 
we had a very interesting article from Risk and Compliance Europe around uh, soccer or what the Europeans would call football and issues of corporate governance, money laundering, and general issues of corruption. And it was a very interesting uh, piece that um, really uh, brought home some of the major issues that I think. One is um, who owns these clubs and is it a way to launder money? Uh, it's a very cash-intensive business, at least when it comes to the fans. So are there appropriate controls around there? And then uh, they kind of took a step back and talked about, well, how do you regulate sports? And uh, interestingly, Jay, they said the regulations are really whatever the leagues put in place um, as their own regulations. So um, you're asking the regulator to regulate uh, what uh, the leagues already have in place. Now, of course, begging the question of the leagues actually uh, doing that, uh, but she pointed out that FIFA's Code of Ethics explicitly states and talks about illegal conduct, unethical conduct, immoral behavior, and bringing uh, disrepute to the game. Uh, those would uh, certainly, uh, money laundering or corruption or fraud would certainly fall under those categories, yet you see very little uh, self-regulation. Um, she also made an interesting observation, which that it's well known in Europe, much more so than in the United States, that football is a loss-making industry, not just a club by club, but an entire industry is loss-making. So why on earth would a businessman want to be a part of such a um, offering or initiative going forward? Well, obviously it's ego and prestige uh, from the American owners. It's probably that they want to change the whole system like they tried to do with the abortive Super League, but that may be uh, something that rears its ugly head uh, once, a more, once more. So uh, interesting kind of roundtable discussion of many of the issues. And once again, uh, kudos to Risk and Compliance Platform Europe uh, for bringing this forward. Thanks, Song. Uh, next, we have the first of two from Mike Volkov's Always Interesting Corruption, Crime and Compliance blog. Uh, in the first one, we take a look at Under Armour, the athletic company agrees to pay $9 million to settle SEC charges that it misled investors about revenue growth. Under Armour settled its long-pending SEC investigation by agreeing to pay $9 million surrounding misleading statements and practices related to its revenue growth and uncertainties as to future growth. As part of the settlement, the SEC declined to bring charges against the company's CEO, Kevin Plank, and the CFO, David Bergman. Under Armour had been the subject of a long-running probe since 2019 when the company disclosed about the DOJ and SEC investigations into its accounting practices. The SEC's case eventually focused on its revenue projections and accounting practices. In particular, the SEC cited Under Armour's use of, quote, pull forward, unquote, sales, which is a term used to describe fraudulent accounting of our accounting of customer sales earlier than projected. Under Armour's internal revenue and growth forecast for the end of 2015 was projected to fall short from analyst revenue estimates, and in particular, the, the results from North America. To meet analyst and internal estimates, 
Under Armour pulled forward approximately $408 million in customer orders that customers request to be shipped in futures. Under Armour relied on this accounting practice, which is contrary to well-established revenue recognition rules and accounting standards for six consecutive quarters beginning in the third quarter of 2015. The company misled investors about the revenue growth by failing to explain its use of pull-forward accounting practices. The company's adoption of the pull-forward sales orders to meet sales targets caused Under Armour to offer incentives to wholesale customers such as discounts or extended payment terms. In one case in September of 2016, a wholesaler was asked to commit to buy more products and responded, quote, we just bought a bunch of your goods in early to help you out for your quarter, and now you want more, more, and more. 30% price discount, please. Under Armour eventually gave the company a 25% discount and an extra month to pay. The company reported year-over-year revenue growth for 26 straight quarters, beginning in the second quarter of 2010. But in the second half of 2015, the company's internal revenue forecast for the remainder of the year indicated shortfalls from analyst revenue estimates. In response to these forecasts and out of concern to maintain its stock price, Under Armour instituted a plan to accelerate or pull forward existing orders. For six consecutive quarters, the company relied on pull forwards to meet analyst revenue projections. And during that period, Under Armour pulled forward $408 million. Under Armour failed to disclose to investors its reliance on these practices. In September of 2016, for example, the company planned to pull through a large shipment of over 50 million by sending it to a customer in December 2016, rather than in 2017 as the customer really wanted. Uh, Under Armour senior executive acknowledged the desire to ship the project product early was to meet analyst revenue estimates, stating that the customer isn't setting Under Armour's product in stores until February. So whether we thought it was 20 or 53 million or whatever, really the customer doesn't want any of that product in December, but we're shipping it and they are absolutely taking it from us as a favor. If we were a privately held company, we would not ship that product until December. Pretty damning stuff. Back to you, Tom. Sure, Jay. Uh, We uh, next look at a keynote address by SEC Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw, entitled Minding the Data Gaps. And in this speech, Jay, she talked about really the paucity of data that's available to the Securities and Exchange Commission in three key areas. The first is private markets. Uh, Not really any surprise there because the SEC, of course, deals with U.S. public companies. But they say without the information from the private markets, uh, really their view of capital uh, raised uh, or capital markets uh, with capital raised via exempt offerings now outpaces the entire amount raised on public markets. And that that, this is leading to a really uh, significant gap of information about reporting and reporting standards. Next is in the area of disclosures uh, from investment professionals about uh, standards of conduct applicable to broker-dealer and investment advisors. And this is another area that uh, she feels the SEC is lacking. And the third one, uh, although it's somewhat a little more technical, uh, uh, which she called a consolidated audit trail. It really relates to 
uh, the GameStop uh, related market activity that took place in January. And she noted that before the SEC can respond to any market events, it needs to understand what happened. Without good information about what took place, the response may fail to address the real issues. And that um, the key to understanding a market event like GameStop is complete, accurate, and accessible source of data. And that, of course, uh, uh, was not available to the SEC. So uh, Commissioner Crenshaw really uh, has given some very provocative talks, uh, particularly after uh, the new administration came in. It's not clear if these are the views of new SEC Commissioner Gary Gensler or not, but uh, whenever a SEC commissioner talks, uh, particularly when their party is in power, you certainly need to listen. Jay, you want to tell us about our second article from our good friend, Mike Bokoff? Sure. This is uh, also from Mike's Corruption, Crime, and Compliance blog, and it's entitled Judge Admonishes Paul Weiss and Alex Ohl. Uh, lawyers can break bad and veer from ethical professional standards every once in a while. Somehow, this is not so hard to envision. Legal misconduct occurs more than most expect. In a curious and headline-making case, Judge Royce Lamberth ended a show-cause proceeding stemming from alleged misconduct against Paul Weiss and specifically its partner, Alex O. This case is even more interesting because Alex O was appointed to serve as the SEC's enforcement director and surprisingly resigned from the position days after taking office when Judge Lamberth's proceeding was initiated. The case arose when Judge Lamberth questioned whether Paul Weiss and former partner Alex O should be sanctioned for negatively characterizing and attacking opposing counsel while representing ExxonMobil in a long-running civil alien tort case involving claims that the Indonesian military engaged in sexual assault, kidnapping, torture, and other cruel acts while providing security services at Exxon's natural gas facility. Alex O and her colleagues were specifically cited for characterizing opposing counsel as being, quote, agitative and combative, close quote, quote, unhinged, close quote, agitated and aggressive during a deposition. In addition, Alex O was cited for characterizing opposing counsel as engaged in, quote, browbeating and disrespectful behavior, unquote. Judge Lamberth specifically cited such statements as imputing opposing counsel's character without evidentiary support. Paul Weiss and Alex O filed responses to the judge's show cause order, and the judge recently issued his decision in which he decided to impose a lesser sanction. Paul Weiss and Alex O effectively apologized in their responses, and the judge noted that if an attorney apologizes, the sanction of admonishment often suffices. But Judge Lambert went on to state, both should have known better than to impugn another attorney's character without reviewing the entire record, and neither should have made those accusations without evidentiary support. The court cannot allow such misconduct to occur without at least rebuking counsel. O apologized for her bad behavior and specifically the breakdown of civility that occurred during and after this unfortunate deposition. On the other hand, O said she believes in good faith that the, quote, characterizations of opposing counsel's demeanor were fair and supported by evidence, period, close quote. And true to form in the legal profession, O's opposing counsel responded to the half apologies as doubling down on their aspersions. 
So, Tom, that's the end of the articles. What's our first podcast we're looking at this week? So, uh, actually, a couple I wanted to raise with you, Jay. Uh, first is we have another episode of the new series on the Compliance Podcast Network, Survive and Thrive, where with my co-host, Courtney Nordrum, uh, we take a look at compliance disasters, how they occurred, lessons learned, and how to avoid them. And we take a look at how to navigate an SEC review of the Code of Conduct. In a special K2 uh, Integrity, Integrity Matters podcast, I had the chance to uh, sit down with Gabe Hidalgo. Uh, Gabe is a uh, former chief compliance officer, but more importantly, a huge expert on cryptocurrencies. And given what happened with cryptocurrencies over the past couple of weeks, it was incredibly timely that we do that. Uh, we also had a new Integrity Through Compliance podcast. You want to tell us about that? Uh, yes, I'm going to have to... Um wing it because my screen just went dark. But uh, my colleague, uh, Dion Lomax, uh, took the controls this week and brought in a colleague of hers from Denton's Kelly Graff. And they took a look at security and cybersecurity. And all this all this was recorded before the uh, recent large ransomware matter. Uh, their remarks look to be very prescient, and we hope you'll check it out. Uh, there'll be links to it on the uh, show notes. And it's the Latest, uh, it's episode number nine of Affiliated Monitors, Integrity Through Compliance podcast. Tom, back to you. Sure. Uh, Jay, in a, upcoming events, K2 Integrity has a great event around their Dolphin platform. If you haven't checked that out, you really should. It's a webinar where you can ask the FinQuery expert on high-risk banking issues. I've got a great panel. It's a discussion of banking, business products, emerging risks, in the virtual asset, i.e. cryptocurrency space, financial crime risk management for fintech. We've linked to registration and information in the show notes. And Jay, I've turned in my final proofs for the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition. It is at the printers, and we anticipate it will be available in June. But before it comes out, you should uh, go ahead and pre-order it because there's a 25% discount uh, if you use the code FOX25. So uh, check out the um, Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition and the weekly, or it's now bi-weekly, podcast series, The Compliance Handbook, where in this episode, I visit with James Gellert. James is the CEO of Rapid Ratings, and he's been in the compliance product space for as uh, long as, as about anybody. And so we talked about the evolution of the product supplier, and that was a fascinating discussion. Back to you, Jay. So uh, if anybody out there in uh, internet land would like to get in touch with Tom, he is the voice of compliance and he can be reached at the initial T Fox at tfoxlaw.com. And as always, uh, except now uh, in Irvine, I'm Jay Rosen, AKA Mr. Monitor. You can reach me at the initial J R O S E N at affiliatedmonitors.com. So, Tom, anything else that we'd like to talk about this week? Uh, the Astros have near the best record in baseball. Uh, we knew that was just a matter of time. It just a matter of trash can banging and time. But but how how are their feelings? How are the hurt Astros feeling about getting um, booed by the New York New York Yankees fans? Well, uh, as a long-suffering Red Sox fan, I'm, I'm sure you can relate. It was uh, very traumatic, very traumatic. And uh, actually, I think uh, Major League Baseball has decided 
the Astros cannot go back to Yankee Stadium uh, because their feelings are hurt so bad. All right. Well, you, you got me. I will bite my tongue now as a long-suffering Red Sox fan who also had their uh, manager given a whole year off because of his uh, involvement in the trash can banging episodes. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 253 for the week ending May 21st of 2021, the Back to Disneyland edition. Uh, we thank you for spending part of your weekend with us, and we look forward to speaking with you next week when we take a look at this week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.